for the last several weeks, we obviously have been um, taking our time during this uh, praying our way to Pentecost. And today, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the characteristics of a Spirit-filled church. This sort of concludes our series on this passage and, and this theme. And how many of you remember uh, Vince Lombardi? Does anybody know who Vince Lombardi is? Is here again? Okay, I get there's some Green Bay Packers here. Uh, fans. But Vince Lombardi, the legendary American football coach of the Green Bay Packers, started each season's uh, training camp by pulling his team together. He would hold up a football and he would say these words, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would walk his players out to the field and he would show them the sidelines and the hash marks and the goalposts and the end zones. And he would tell them what their responsibilities were. And he would tell them what their goal was. Their goal was to score more points than their opponents. And then, obviously, blocking and tackling drills would commence. Basic stuff, obviously, to be sure. But Lombardi's focus on fundamentals paid off. In the nine years of his coaching, his football teams played in the championship game every year but one, and his 66-67 year football team won the first Super Bowl, defeating the Kansas City Chiefs 35-10. to Lombardi stood, understood that success in the game of football depended on learning and executing the fundamentals. Disciple-making disciple is no different. We need to begin to establish fundamentals in the framework of what Jesus talked about in making disciples. In a similar way, Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's our goal. In Acts chapter 1, it's interesting that we read how the disciples were anxious to establish their kingdom. It said, but Jesus had other ideas. Obviously, he knew that they had been with him for three years. They'd watched him pray and preach and heal people. He modeled before them what it would mean to live this life for Jesus. He calmed their fears by telling them that he was going away, but not to be fearful that he would return when everything was ready. He would also send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to guide them. And so in their zeal, they started. Jesus was returning to the basic fundamentals. In Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4 and 5, it says, Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they did. For 10 days, they gathered together to pray, to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They didn't know for how long or when he might come or really what to expect, but they waited. Finally, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. 
Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And so began the pattern for the church. It's interesting, I've used this quote several times, Dr. William Greathouse, one of our general superintendents, and in his book, Fullness of the Spirit, is quoted as saying, the glory and power of God must fill the church collectively and her members individually. The sound as of the rushing mighty winds suggests that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The cloven tongues as of fire that sat on each of their head was for each of them, suggesting that the experience was personal. Dr. Phineas Brzee would say our founding member of the Church of the Nazarene so many years ago, he oftentimes would say, keep the glory down. Not, shh, you're getting too loud, but rather that presence that we sense, the Holy Spirit's work, make sure you do whatever it's necessary to keep his presence down where we are. And so the question becomes, what characteristics became of the Spirit-filled church in the New Testament? Well, our text is found in verse 42. And in verse 42, it says these words, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Characteristics of a Spirit-filled church praying our way to Pentecost. You see, what we learn in these verses is that the church was not just some afterthought or option. No, it was the natural result of an outpouring of the Spirit, the preaching of Jesus' death and resurrection, the change of mind that brought people to Christ. When 3,000 people are added to 120 followers of Christ, they immediately devoted themselves to the church. Conversion to Christ naturally and necessarily led to the commitment to the church, not to the church building, but to the four things that constitutes the heart of what we consider to be the saved community. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, I realize that we live in an age of spiritual but not religious, or I'm part of the nun congregation or group where church is not only optional for true believers, but even an obstacle for non-believers. But in Acts chapter 2, we are reminded that in the beginning, the church was not a human invention, something dreamed up by the apostles to enforce rules or to hammer some religious dogma and pile responsibilities on an overly taxed life. The church is God's plan for all of his children. Notice the language that is being used in Acts chapter 2. In all, If you take all of the various translations, it's very inclusive. You hear words like everyone, all, everything, anyone, every, and daily. There were no barriers. There was no red or blue. There were no half commitments. Everyone was all in. An unchurched Christian was an oxymoron. No one had to tell the first believers to go to church or to join church or to be the church. 
It was the most natural, joyful thing they could do. So what were the characteristics of a spirit-filled church? Well, the first thing that we learn is this. The spirit-filled, what are the, well, is this. That they were learning and growing together. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice that little word, all. It wasn't some of the believers. It wasn't some, well, I've been there. I've been through that. I know all of that. I'm not really going to necessarily do that. No, that's not what it says. It says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to gathering together, and I'll get to that in just a minute. What's interesting about this passage is this. Note that the apostles had no real formal training or education as teachers or being recognized as religious authorities. None of them had any formal religious training. They'd been fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people. But it's clear to the believers that their authority came from being with Jesus. They had been taught directly by him, and this was their story. For those reasons, the new converts were very careful to listen and to put into practice the apostles' teaching. The new believers found their joy from Jesus. But they expressed their joy and they experienced their joy as we'll see in these characteristics. And so they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. What did they teach? Well, if you look at Peter's first sermon there at Pentecost, he preached Jesus, who he was, what he did, what it means, how he was great, and he was the great and final revelation of God's will and God's salvation. And when he left this earth, he said to his apostles, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So that's what they were doing in those days of Pentecost, and it brought them great joy. You see, in a world of confusion about how to live and how to be saved, about the meaning of life and the nature of ultimate reality, what an incredible gift is it is to have God's authoritative word to guide us. In a world of, that's full of bad news and hopeless situations, what a gift it is to have the good news of great joy for all people. No wonder they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was something they'd never heard before, but they felt that they needed, and they wanted more. So what does that mean for us today? It means that we're on a journey to become like Jesus. It's, it's finding our place in the story of God. It's not only learning to be a disciple, but it embraces the ideas of how to think like Jesus. What do I do, and why does that matter? Or what do I believe? Why does that matter? It's to be like Jesus. It's, am I becoming the person that God wants me to be? It's acting like Jesus. How can I put my faith into action? You see, by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were learning how to become followers and disciples themselves. Well, you say, Pastor, well, that's great. We hear this word all the time. What in the world does a disciple mean? Well, someone gives us this this or definition. Someone who is following Jesus, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, 
and is committed to Jesus' kingdom mission. I like that definition because it does a couple of different things. It, it ties together the focus. What's our focus? It's Jesus. It, it, it focuses on the process being changed and the call to lead others to become disciples with us, Jesus' kingdom mission. So we get to these two questions. Now, you've heard these questions before. What is Jesus saying and what is my response Am I committed to becoming a disciple and in turn help to make disciples of others? And so they gathered together. The second thing of characteristic was that they had fellowship together. That's what the scripture said. Notice the word and. This was part of the process. It wasn't an isolated step. It wasn't by itself. It was saying, no, you're going to do this and this. The word here is koinonia, which is the kind of an intimate fellowship that you find in marriage. It is fellowship with a purpose. It's not simply enjoying, even though we like getting together for coffee and the various things, but in reality, it's shared commitment to an important task, the task of loving each other sacrificially. This was an important step. It wasn't just about following the apostles' teaching, but it was putting that teaching into practice. It's too easy to become dependent on just sitting and listening. When we ascribe to just to be content with knowledge about rather than practical life change, then loving God and loving our neighbor we feel less confident in our ability to understand and respond to unexpected circumstances in our lives. Christian life is not primarily about knowing just right things. It's about living in Christ. The goal of true fellowship is to build community, but it also moves into deeper levels of accountability. It's being able to have more meaningful conversations about the state of one's soul. No doubt you were watching maybe this weekend the pageantry of Great Britain when the queen was celebrating her platinum reign over there of 70 years. And, but did you also know that John Wesley, so many years ago, helped to change English history? When Napoleon was ravaging all of Europe over there, it was John Wesley because of his societies and his band and his, and his uh, class meetings were changing all of English history, and they would get to the point. And I want to ask you, when was the last time someone asked you how it is with your soul? Not just, hey, are you a Christian? But what are you struggling with? Are you keeping the faith? Are you having problems at work or with your kids or at home? I want to join with you. It's never an accusatory thing, but rather it's a, an embracing. It's an adjourning together. It's what we did here with Bethany. It's to say you have a community of believers that is together, that's interested about where you're spending eternity. Being a disciple in fellowship is saying, I'm interested in you enough to ask you, hey, I've noticed some things in your life. You don't seem as happy as before. Yeah, I've noticed some things and I haven't seen you for a little while. How are things going? When we earn the right to be in each other's lives, see, 
We don't like that kind of stuff. And so we sort of back up and we, we live lonely, isolated lives, hoping that no one will ask us because if we did, it's like poking the bubble. And all the things that maybe we have been keeping inside will just come gushing forth. And I'm afraid if I'm vulnerable, you may not like me for who I am. Oh, but you see, we really do need each other. We need to embrace each other. When, when life gets messy, when we don't always have the answers, we don't always have, know what even the questions are, that we would journey together. People need to be involved in meaningful, constant community, or they will continue on indefinitely in a state of intense loneliness. But you see, we have to, too many worlds to manage. When we talk about being a disciple, when we talk about devoting ourselves to godly teaching and fellowship in our brains, what we contend to do is that we pull out our mental calendar and we're going to say, well, how can I fit all of this in? And the problem is that we have allowed so many things in our lives that we don't have enough decisions. We have too many decisions. And we have allowed God and we've allowed Jesus and we've allowed our relationship to just be one of many decisions rather than the focus. Gentlemen, this is a football. Well, it's my phone, but you get the idea. But you see, what we're after is that we would join together. The mission is to simplify our lifestyles in such a way that we concentrate more energy into a circle of relationships that produce a sense of genuine belonging. Verse 42 says, and to share the meals, including the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just about meeting together in large gatherings for worship. They also had small groups in their homes. And eating together was a key part of that because sharing a meal creates a bond and moves us towards reconciliation. Some might say, well, that small group stuff, you know, that's a sort of church growth passing fit. Well, actually, it's a returning back to the original intent of what the church was designed to be, that we could be a part of each other's lives. Well, here's the third. The third characteristic is about serving together. It says in verse 44, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. I've said this before about this passage. Luke is not, he's not telling us in the church that we should practice some kind of Christian communism. Luke was describing a voluntary sharing of our possessions. An on-as-needed basis, having everything in common was an ideal practice of a close-knit family to say, hey, you need something, I've got that, I can help that. It wasn't mandated. It didn't come from the top down. It was an outpouring of the heart to say, when you have a need, I want to help meet that need. And I want to say so many times when we have asked you as Lacombe about a particular need that we might have here, and we send out an email or a prayer request, you have been awesome in fulfilling what we're talking about here, in helping to serve one another, to say, I want to come along someone and to help what they have in their life. It's interesting in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Peter and John were on their way to the temple. And as they were approaching, there was a lame man who had been there every day, and he saw them coming, and he asked them about some money. 
Peter said, he said, I don't, I don't have any silver or gold. I don't need silver or gold for you, but when I get, but I'll give you what I have. He didn't check his pockets. He didn't check his wallet. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And I wonder how many times we're, we're so, we're not so quick to give them what we have. What do we have? We have the good news of Jesus Christ. We have a message that'll change their life for all of eternity. I've done num a number of funerals while I've been here, and each and every time I've asked those questions about being right with Christ. Why? Because it makes all the difference in eternity. And we have a message that the world desperately needs to hear. In the, monks, in the midst of all the political chaos, in the midst of rising gas prices, in the, in the midst of trying to figure out all the various things that go on, what people need to hear is the good news that Jesus Christ loves them and died for them and can make an eternal difference in their life. That's not what I, I don't have silver and gold, but what I've got, I'll give to you. You see, what's interesting though is, is that the church was meant to be a place where predominantly believers gathered to be strengthened and challenged and poured into, not to, not to get in our cars and say, well, great, I did that, check the box off. I went to church on Sunday. No, we do all of that so that we can go into our community and be the salt and the light for Jesus Christ to a hurting and dying world. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. He said, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, here's the last, but certainly not the least. They prayed together. The life of the church had been set in motion it began with intense prayer as the Holy Spirit fell on them and filled them with His Spirit so that they continued in prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer and to worship, and every day they continued together in the temple courts, joining in the normal times of prayer in the temple. And every day they worshiped God in prayer and praise so that, verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. People began to see a difference in their world. They began to see the difference in the lives of those apostles as they began to live out what was going on and the church as it began to grow. Not only did they hear the word of God every day, but they saw the hand of God regularly. That created a sense of awe and wonder and mystery and reverence and transcendence. They weren't just going through religious motions. They were in touch with God in worship and worship, and God touched them. And so I, cl I close with this. What, what does all this mean? What is all this prayer that we've been doing for this last month? What, what, what does Pentecost Sunday mean? Where do we go from here? Next week, I, I'm going to be sharing my pastor's report with you. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means this. It means we need sound biblical teaching for learning. 
You can learn about a lot of different things, but, but does, it point our, does it point us to Jesus? I'm a firm believer, and, I, and, and so Holy Spirit, help me here. I'm a firm believer that we sometimes don't always know what we believe. And I think some of the fear in sharing our faith isn't that we, we don't know what to say or we're fearful of questions that might come our way. If I knew what I know and I was confident about what I know, there's no, and I think I, did I say this a couple of weeks ago? A couple, if I know what I know and I'm confident about what I know, you can't talk me out of it. I, I know I used this illustration before, didn't I? Because two plus two is four. You cannot talk me out of that. One plus three is four. Six minus one is five, but if you subtract another one, it's four. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. We'll end that illustration right there. We need good, sound biblical teaching for learning. If you think about it, the first day of the church started with 120 people. And after the first day, 3,000 people were in the church. And that can be a pastor's greatest dream or his biggest nightmare. Because those people were from a lot of different locations and backgrounds. And while most of them had some biblical background, they were ignorant about the person and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the apostles had a massive job on their hands to ground these people in the, in the new faith before they returned home. And that's why sound doctrine and teaching is so important. That part of being a spirit-filled church who makes disciples means that we take the time to teach people what is it important to believe. That you can't talk me out of it. So that when people come knocking at your door, you know what to say because you believe what you believe. Paul said to young Timothy, you know, there's a time coming when people aren't going to any longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. And they're going to follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. And they'll reject the truth and chase after myths. You see, we can't be so devoted to the head who is Christ and at the same time cut ourselves off from the body, his church. That's why we need fellowship with a purpose. And while we should gather with the whole church for worship and teaching, we only enjoy deep fellowship with those that we get to know personally. And if we only attend Sunday morning services and then go home and we're never a part of a smaller group or a time of getting to know, then we're missing out on half of what Christ was saying that the church really needed to be a part of. God intends for us to have fellowship. I'll talk more about that next week. Sound biblical teaching and learning, fellowship with a purpose. It's serving the needs of others. The old chorus we sang many years ago used to say it this way, they will know we are Christians by our love. It's moving from the head to the heart to the hands. We must be about engaging the mission of Christ to others. An overemphasis of just one of these areas is an imbalance. 
A false sense of security and pride begins to develop about my relationship to growing in Christ. If all I ever focus on is knowledge and, and, and gleaning things of knowledge in my life, then it becomes the aspect of, well, I know enough. I don't really need to learn anymore. If there's an overemphasis on fellowship, it's, well, I just like getting together. I don't need all that other stuff. Let's just have fun. If there's an overemphasis of serving, it becomes a works righteousness kind of a thing. And it's like, look what I'm doing. If there's an overemphasis on prayer, then sometimes nothing is ever put into action. That's why it's, a, that's why it's an and. It's an altogether. That's why we need prayerfully to have prayerful guidance from the Holy Spirit. You see, the making of disciples is not a static, linear, sequential, check-the-box type of mentality, but rather a journey that God uses to disciple us in every situation of life, in every type of relational interaction, and that he uses different situations and different relationships in different ways. I'll talk more about this next week, but it's what some might call the discipleship that fits. Jesus was the master discipler. He uses the public context when he was with the crowds. He used the social context when he was in smaller groups of just 70. He used personal contact when he was with the 12. He used a transparent context when he was just with his three inner core. And then he used the divine context when it was just he and the Father. I close with this before we close and sing. Vince Lombardi held up the football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. But Jesus laid down his own life and he died for you and me. And he said in John chapter 12, verse 32, and when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, everyone, to myself. My desire is to help others find their place in the story of God. As they become disciples of Jesus Christ, it's that simple. So the question is, what is the Lord saying? And what's my response? I had a conversation this last week. I won't go into great details had a conversation this last week. I was so impressed that their answer to my questions was whatever the Lord wanted, my answer would be yes. What is the Lord saying? What's my response? It's yes. It's just yes. I don't know what all that means. It's just yes. I want to move in your life. Yes, Lord. I want to do some new things in your life. Yes, Lord. I want you to go and do this. Yes, Lord. Would you be my? Yes, Lord. You see, the answer to the question that we've been wrestling with for, year, for the last several weeks is just yes. It's just yes. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would rain down on us. We're going to close with that song. We sang it earlier today. Now, I don't know where you are in the scope of things. 
But Jesus gave us the, the characteristics of a spirit-filled church. That's my prayer. If you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning, and if you want to respond in such a way that you just want to maybe come and pray, the altar is always open. Again, I say this all the time. You're not joining the church or anything like that. You're just finding a, a nice place to say, God, I, I need to talk to you. I want you to know, God. I want you to know, God, that my answer is yes this morning. And I don't even know the question. It's just yes. And if you want the Holy Spirit this morning, if you want to just sense his presence and you just want to come and pray as we sing, would you just be responsive to him this morning? Stand with me today. Father, may our answer be yes this morning to whatever you have. That's what we want. Rain down on us, Lord. Be with us today. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Our Father, this morning, that really is our prayer. It's encompassed in the answer of yes. Just yes. We might even know the question. We might not even know the question. But our answer is still yes. Because we believe in you, Lord, and we trust in you. Our prayer is, Lord, that you would come in, in ways that would be personal for us. That might be corporately and collectively. It might be individually. Whatever way, Lord, whatever way, our prayer is, come, Holy Spirit, I need thee. Now, Lord, as we go from this place, several have come to pray this morning. We're going to continue to pray around the front. As we go from this place, Lord, it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and God, we're thankful for that. We want to celebrate uh, the, those that we celebrated today, but, but God, our focus is going to be upon you this morning. So thank you. Thank you for meeting with us today. Put your spirit upon us today. Let us be your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you this morning. Thank you for being here. We're going to pray, continue to pray around the front. So I'm going to ask you to go quietly. If you join us online, God bless you this morning. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.